Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. All right, good evening. Turn your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to continue in our series there. Good job to the few and the faithful to make it out on a sunny evening to come to church service. So I'm not sure what the 144,000 are in Revelation, but I think this might be it, at least part of it. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is where we're going to be at today, and we're going to actually finish through chapter 6. We're going to give an announcement soon for a family meeting coming up. Last year we did our family meeting earlier in the year. This uh, time we're going to have our family meeting coming up. But just to give you guys a quick uh, heads up on where we're at as a as, as a church is, uh, First Christian Church has been uh, generous enough to allow us to use their building, and they've given us a, a three-month commitment from them. And so we are a month into that three-month commitment. And so what I would encourage you guys to do and, and, and uh, join us in is this, is that we are actively still praying for and looking for another location in the downtown area. Uh, I'll be... Uh, I'll be expounding on why the downtown area and and our family meeting, if you guys can make it to that. So, but uh, keep, keep praying for us and praying for a more permanent location for our church. So we don't have to hop from location to location. But at the end of the day, I've explained to people that it feels like this, that it feels like our church hasn't missed a beat, that, that we are the body of Christ. We went from uh, lane five CrossFit into this place and it just feels like we've just kept on going. And I'm encouraged by that and thankful for that. But yeah, please, please, please make it a fierce commitment in your life to pray for our church on a daily, consistent basis that, that God would provide a home. And so we need, uh, in a sense, a miracle because the size of our church and the budget of our church for a spot in downtown is going to be a miracle. And so, but we want to be in the heart of the city. And we know that uh, uh, that comes with struggles because uh, in the heart of the city is where a, a lot of the city's problems are, but we don't believe that the church in a sense should be uh, separated from that or removed from that, but in, in, instead at the heart of that. And so it's our heart and vision to be there and be at the, in, in the middle of the city. So please keep praying for us and stay tuned uh, to our family meeting coming up. And so if you're not a part of the GCC family, you want to know what we're about, what even what our doctrinal distinctives are and stuff, we'd invite you to come to that. I think it'll be a helpful way for you to kind of plug into what we're doing. So. Let's jump in. Today is sermon's title is Grace is Greater. Grace is Greater. Those three words. We're going to look at that a lot is offered to us in this world, and, and, and the preacher is, is giving us wisdom to see that, that what's offered through money and through wealth and through the riches of this world, there has got to be something greater because wealth and vanity, or wealth is vanity. And money is vanity. And so what we would conclude is that the gospel is greater and God's grace is greater. So let's pray. Father, we give you this time. And uh, first, we thank you for FCC to allow us to use this space. And we pray that you would provide a permanent home for our church family, for our church community. And Father, we believe and trust you have the perfect spot for us, wherever that is. And, uh, and ultimately, we trust this, that the, that the church is a a uh, family and a body of believers, not a building. And so uh, wherever that's at, Father, I pray that we would rejoice in, in, in the same message that ties us together, the gospel. I pray the gospel is proclaimed this evening through your word and through me. And we pray your spirit would, 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 would empower this sermon, would, would speak to us. So we pray that you would uh, calm us down and know that uh, we come in here with our minds filled with so much stuff, even riddled by what Monday holds for us. But we pray in this moment, during this time, you would slow us down to be receptive and to hear from you. We thank you that we have a God who loves us and who speaks to us. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes 5, we're going to be in verse 8. Verse 8 today. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8. I think before we dive in, it's helpful to remember the, the type of literature that Ecclesiastes is. It's, it's sapient literature. It's wisdom literature. And the reason why that's important is because the, the preacher, the author, is not prescribing something here. He's not describing something here. What he's actually doing is, is offering to us what it looks like to live on this side of the fall. We believe that God created the world. He created it good. But then the fall of mankind uh, happened because of man's rebellion against God and that sin permeated through the world. And we believe that we have wisdom literature like this as, as a really big blessing and gift from God to tell us what it looks like to live this life here and now after the fall. And so if someone that you know, or if you can think of someone you know who is incredibly tel- intelligent or the smartest person that you know, when that person speaks, you're probably inclined to listen. Oftentimes when we stand up here and we quote Jonathan Edwards or Martin Luther or Jen Wilkin or people like this, people will tune in to stuff like that when we say these theological names that they like. What I would encourage you to do is, is to know and understand this, that one of the wisest men who's ever walked the face of the earth, Solomon, wrote this. And he was, he was inspired and empowered by the spirit of God as he wrote. And so what we have is, is, is in front of us is literally one of the wisest pieces of communication that we could ever receive. And it's from God. And so when God speaks to us about issues that we face daily in our lives, I hope that instead of just listening to Jonathan Edwards or the Martin Luther's or the Jen Wilkins, that we would listen to the word of God and what the word of God has to say on the things that we daily face in our life. I would also say this is that grace reshapes your life. It's greater and it will reshape and reshape and reshape your life. And I hope this for our community. I told people uh, as we were praying today for the service that even if GCC is known for a theology that a lot of the world disagrees with, that I pray that, that, that people would know that, that grace abounds in GCC and that we are a community that loves people really well. So even if people don't agree with our theology, and even if people don't agree with the way that we preach and teach the word of God, that what, what they couldn't deny is that their love is real and that the grace of God abounds in their community. And I think that as we come face to face with God and with God's grace, it has to change us. It has to produce something. My wife would tell you that I'm, I'm not overly passionate about a lot of things. I think she wishes that I would be more passionate about more stuff. I'm just not. I don't get stirred up or worked up about too many things. But what I am passionate about is I'm passionate about the gospel and I'm passionate about God's grace. Because I believe it's like this. I don't think that we would have a run-in with a freight train or that you would be struck by a freight train and walk away from that unscathed. And in the same way, I believe that when you interact with God's grace, when you encounter God's grace, and we see anyone in the Bible who has encountered Christ and the grace of God, they didn't walk away from that unchanged and unscathed. They walked away from that radically transformed. I don't believe that you can continue to embrace and see and behold the grace of God and not be transformed by it. And so what I would ask and encourage you guys, even that, is even say a quick prayer now, that if you've somewhat grown numb to the grace of God or bored by the grace of God, that the spirit would floor you again by beholding the grace of God. When I was 17 years old, around 17, I was, I was goose hunting in Roseburg, Oregon, where I grew up. I know this outfit wouldn't lend itself to you guys believing that I goose hunt, but like I said before, my wife does my shopping. So I, I, was, I was goose hunting and there we were sitting in our blind. And what you do is you, is you actually sit in these cornfields 
and uh, you sit inside of these chairs, inside of these cornfields with all of your decoys placed out in front of you. And so there we were. I was 17 and I was with a couple of my buddies. Now, if you ask one of my buddies, Ben, who he's been to this church a couple of times, his version of the story, I think his is a little bit different. I think mine's the more accurate version. But what was happening is I was calling for the geese. That's what you do. You sit in these, you sit in these chairs. Uh, as, I've, as I even pro- verbally process, I realized... Uh, how crazy this probably sounds to most people, but, uh, but, but you sit there and you call the geese and as the geese come in, then, then one person screams, take them. And then the shooters stand up and then they shoot the geese, right? Uh, well, I was choking and I was the only caller. And so I couldn't, I couldn't get my breath and I was choking. So I remember Ben saying, shut up and, and start calling, uh, because I was choking or, uh, quit, quit with the coughing and start calling again. So that, those were, the, I remember him saying the shut up piece and he remembers me, uh, uh, him more, uh, more or less kind of encouraging me to get it together and start calling more. So this is what happened since I couldn't stop choking and I couldn't stop coughing and I couldn't stand up quick enough. Cause by the time that I got up, they were already like firing away is that I decided to do something. I decided to flip the safety off on my shotgun so that when I dropped my call or set it down, when I stood up, I just had to grab my gun and start shooting. So it was just one less move, right? Here's what happened. When, when I did this, I was sitting down and I had my gun right in front of me, just leaned up against my lap. Horrible, horrible idea. Is that when I sat up, I grabbed my gun like this. And as soon as I started to tilt my gun forward, I pulled the trigger and my gun went off, like right in front of my face. I honestly don't know to this day how I didn't uh, like literally blow my head off. But I remember sitting there just silent for a long time going, oh my goodness. Like I should literally be dead right now. So I sat there, I didn't make a call, I didn't talk to Ben, I didn't talk to anyone, I just sat there going, wow, I should be dead. And, and in that moment, you have one of those moments where you go, wow, I'm alive, and I shouldn't be alive. And I believe that when you have encounters like that, they, they slow you down, but what they do is make you go, oh my goodness, I have a different appreciation for life. And you go, in that moment, it's amazing that I'm even still alive and I'm breathing. And I believe that as we interact and encounter with the grace of God, it should be something like that to where we go, oh my goodness, I can't believe that I'm his child. I can't believe that I'm loved the way that I am. I can't believe that he's chosen me. I can't believe that he saved me. I can't believe that I've experienced the things that I've experienced from God. Let's take a look at the word. Verse eight, if you've seen a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness. Do not be amazed at the matter for the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gained for a land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields. What's going on? He is saying this. Our world is filled with oppression. If you've seen in the province, if you, if, if, if you see this going on, if you see the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness. He, and he says, don't be amazed. This stuff happens in the world that we live in. It happened back then. People love to say the good old days. I don't believe the good old days existed outside of the garden. And so, because even back then he's saying that you can see this constant oppression of the poor and you can see injustice. And we have a clear picture throughout history of oppression. We have slavery. We have oppression on women. We have Nazi Germany. We have a, a foster care system in the U.S. that on average has about around a half a million kids in it. Why? Because of abuse that exists inside of homes. Oppression is a very real thing, and it's something that, that many of us have experienced, but it's something that goes on in the world and in around us. 
And he's saying that when you see this sort of thing, when you see this oppression, do not be surprised by it. We have an innate dislike for oppression. We love justice, not just the eights on the Enneagram in the room, but we, we love justice. Why? Because God is just, and we know that he is just. But here's what's amazing about this text to me, is that he, li- he lines this out, that you're going to see this oppression that's going on throughout the provinces, th- that you're going to see this stuff. But he's telling you this, that there is a higher official over them, and there's even a higher official above them. So what he's saying to you is this, is that ultimately at the end of the day, what we are called to do is know that we live in a world filled with oppression, but to know and trust that God is good. And there's a king seated, uh, seated on the throne, and he is good. And I don't want Christians to understand that. I don't want us to understand that in a superficial way. I want us to actually know that, that, that Jesus Christ, the king, is really, really good. He's high above the president. He's high above our uh, parents. He's high above our world systems. He's high above everything else. And he's awesome. And he's really, really good. But I believe that the reason why he does this, and then he transitions into talking about money, is that sometimes I think that we think, when we think about injustices that are in the world, we often go, the evil is out there. So why would the author choose to say, when you see the oppression on the poor in the land, when you see this stuff going on, do not be surprised. And then he transitions to cover the rest of this chapter and all of chapter six on money and wealth. Why does he do that? Because of this reason. When John wrote to the seven churches in Revelation, he wasn't saying there's this evil that exists out inside of the world. When Paul writes letters to the churches, what, what, what's constantly happening is this, is there's this call to take a look inside, to take a look at what's going on inside of our hearts, to not always turn out and look and say, the evil exists out there in the world. He's saying that as a child of God into the nation of Israel, but to those of us that are children of God, we have a problem with injustice. We have a problem with evil, but are we willing to take a look at our own hearts and see the way that we value money and value wealth and the sort of evil that's done even with us? Notice what he says here in verse nine. He says, but this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivating fields. It's important to know that the word committed here is actually a very negative word. And any time that it's used in the Bible, it's primarily used to talk about committing acts of sexual immorality. It's actually used in a very negative way. So a king committed to cultivating fields, he says, this is gain in a land in every way. What does he mean by this? Is that what, what the kings were committed to doing is that they were going to cultivate a field. Why? So that at the end of the day, they could reap from those rewards, from that harvest, and they could get a blessing from what's going on inside the fields. That's what kings did. That's what kings were known for, is that their motive for doing stuff was that they would cultivate fields and do stuff like that. So at the end of the day, they could feed themselves. Here's what's found, uh, fundamentally different about Christianity, is that at the center of Christianity, we have a king, Jesus Christ, who doesn't do stuff. So in the end, he gets a reward out of it. He does stuff so that in the end, he gives us the full reward of God's grace. And unless we understand that, and, and, and unless we really get that as we transition to talk about grace, then God's grace will be something that's superficial and that we have a very shallow view of. Let's take a look at this. Verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. 
We are not going to look at all these verses from, uh, from verse 10 through chapter 6, but we're going to hit on a few of these. Like I said before, I believe that he transitions to money and to finances and to wealth because he's not calling us to look out in the world and say, that's evil. Why do I think this is important? I think this is important because for a church, if we continue to look at the world and see the world as the problem, this will have a big impact on us. Because what we'll, what we'll need to see is that the world needs grace, but we don't. And I know this because part of my story lends my thought to believing that is that uh, for years I despised my story, my testimony, despised it. Didn't like it, didn't like the way that I grew up. Didn't like the household that, in a sense that I was raised in or the sort of abuse that I received from a father. And I despised that. And for so long I did not like my story, I did not even like to share my story because of this, that I thought, man, I can understand why so-and-so is awesome or why they're stable because they had a father who loved them, who didn't abuse them and who told them really nice words. Anyone could thrive in that sort of environment, right? I remember thinking stuff like that and constantly thinking stuff like that, that if I had a story different than my own, that what I can do is, is, is be something else or be someone else. And so what I would constantly look to and see is that my dad needed, needed grace is that my dad is the one that's in need of grace. And then so I rejected my story. A counselor once told me, he said, what I would like you to do, Rick, is I would like you to relive part of your story. I was like, no, thanks. He was like, what I would like you to do is I would like you to go back into these experiences that you had inside of your home or that you had inside uh, of your home with your father. And he was like, I would like to picture you. I would like you to picture yourself as a little boy there and Jesus Christ inside the room. I said, I tried that and it made me super angry. Were any other emotions available at that time? I was like, just anger. <laughs> like this is, this is a conversation that I had. And I was like, that's what I experienced. I experienced anger. If you want, I'll go back and relive it. But I got a feeling it'll be the same thing. Why? Because in my mind, in my mind, I would never, ever do or say the things that a father said. Can't even reconcile it. Would never do it. And I see my dad's desperate need for grace. What's changed? I'm a parent now. And I see my desperate need for God's grace. No longer just my dad's as, as, as though the problem exists outside in the world or with someone else. Now I see my own need for God's grace. Oftentimes I finish my day kneeling down next to my girls' beds, asking God to forgive me and give me grace to grow as a parent of what it looks like to be the best model of Christ that I can be to them and to model and demonstrate God's grace. I see this that I need grace. Not just my dad needs grace, not everyone in the world needs grace, but we need grace. Everyone in this room needs grace. And here's the reality. However much grace that you think you need, that is a sliver to the reality of how much you actually need. And however much grace you've experienced by God doesn't hold up at all to the infinite magnitude of how much God's grace actually is. It's a good thing to admit that we need grace. And it's a good thing for us not to look at the world, but to actually evaluate our own hearts and lives right now. And here's why I'm saying this, because we're going to talk about money. And what someone once said, money makes people funny. But it would be unfaithful for me to say that I'm going to preach to the word of God. And when we get to hard passages that talk about sex, or sexual immorality, that talk about divorce or money or anything like that to avoid it. Why? Because you don't go to the doctor and say, 
hey, I'm going to give you a, just a small picture of my life, and then I, I want you to tell me what's wrong with me. The doctor would ask lots of questions. What are you eating? What are you sleeping? What's going on with you? He needs a bigger picture. And the reason why it would be unhelpful for me just to give you small pictures of the Word of God is because in our culture, a lot revolves around money. A lot of our marriage arguments revolve around money. I struggle to trust God with finances. My wife is a lot better than that than I am. A lot of the decisions that we make in life revolve around money. And what the preacher is saying is that a lot of evil that happens in our world is centered on this idolatry that we have of money. I could preach on money over and over and over again, but here's what has to happen is we have to be willing to say, am am I someone who needs the grace of God? And, And am I someone who's willing to hear and receive and see that I might need the grace of God when it comes to the way that I value money and wealth and finances? It's not a call today to give, to write off uh, most of your savings account or anything like that. I'm just simply asking this as the pastor of this church to say this, will you at least evaluate whether money is an idol in your heart and in your life and if finances are, and can you admit that you need God's grace in this area? He says this, he who loves money in verse 10 will not be satisfied with it, nor he who loves wealth with his income. That is also vanity. What's he saying? that you can have all the money in the world. You can have the next promotion. You can have the next whatever, but it's actually not going to be able to satisfy. This is why over and over again, we see our culture and we see people go, I'm rich, I'm loaded. I've got all this stuff. I've, I've, I've arrived to the next level, but yet I'm still not satisfied. And here's a question you could ask yourself. What, uh, what is the salary that you make now? And is that salary satisfying you? Or now that you're making the salary, are you now looking to the next salary that you can make? Or here's the career that I currently have, but if I can make it to the next career, here's what it'll look like to arrive. And I would say sometimes, in some cases, even people for people in this room, you make double of what you made five or 10 years ago, but you still want to make more. And if you think that uh, five or 10 years ago, you're like, man, if I can make whatever the figure is, this number, this number, this number, that's what would be it for me. And now for some of you, you make that figure and go, it's not enough. Why? Well, the preacher just tells us that money has an inability to satisfy our deepest longings. And he who loves wealth with his income, this also, he says, is is hevel. It's vanity. Why? Because when goods increase, so does everyone else who wants your goods. That's what that means in verse 11. What advantage is this to the owner, but just to see it with his eyes. Then he says this, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Why? Because the laborers, put in their work and they sleep at night, not consumed by money, wealth, and finances. This is from Forbes magazine. Smattering of research has suggested that authority may be linked to depression and that CEOs may be depressed at more than double the rate of the general public, which is already about 20%. I've had a number of high profile individuals in my practice over the years, says Deborah Sarani, psychologist and author of the award-winning book, Living with Depression. And there's no doubt in my mind that they struggle more with depression they constantly compare themselves to the, Jones, to the Joneses. Countries that are low income, on the other hand, have low depression rates. When you come from premier country, there's extreme competition and extreme feelings of failure. You constantly ask yourself, am I a have or a have not? Or am I an almost have? Someone else points out that trying to find worth by looking further up the ladder is pretty consistently a self-destructive endeavor, and it often adds to depressions. Some people habitually measure their self-worth by whoever seems to be more successful than they are, a recipe for constant depression and inducing envy. What is it? 
In the same way I talked a while back about rest, and I would say that since our culture has not figured out what it looks like to have healthy rest, rest, the reason why is because we are driven by whatever the next endeavor is, by, by money. We are driven by wealth. We are driven by things that we do not have that we want to get our hands on. What's further proof of this? What's further proof that money is, is an idol for us? Look at verse 13. There's a grievous, uh, a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. What's proof? There it is. The proof that money is an idol is that we hoard money. And it actually says here that by hoarding money, it, 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 it actually hurts someone. Why? Because your rest and your security is in a savings account. Your rest in security and comfort is in what you can have. Your rest in security is in a place that is extremely fickle. And how do we know that? Because verse 14 tells us, and the riches were lost in a bad venture. People know this. That's why so many successful people have told you that they've lost their, their wealth like that. Because wealth is fickle. And this is why he says it, it, it's, it's, it's a grievous evil. Watching what's going on that people are just taking stuff and hoarding it and hanging on to it. A lack of generosity actually says more about your view of money and wealth than anything else. It's just, that's just a reality. This might be hard for you guys to hear, but your marriage says a lot about your theology. And so does how you spend and what you do with money. You just can't separate these things. The way that a man talks to a woman, the way that a man cherishes his bride, the way that a wife respects her husband, that is saying something about someone's marriage. And the way that you view and spend your money and the resources that God has given you, not just money, but time and everything, it says something about your theology. It says that either you grasp the generosity of God and so you're living in a generous lifestyle or that what you understand is that you have a very shallow view of God's grace and his love and his forgiveness and mercy. And so therefore what you do is you offer up a shallow version of that. It's the same way. Jesus makes this point clear. When the woman comes in, in Luke, he talks about this. And he says, Simon, do you know why that she's willing to wash my feet with tears? And with another woman, do you, do you, do you know why she's willing to pour the alabaster of oil all over my head, dump the whole thing out, which was worth a lot of money back then. Why? Because those that are forgiven much, forgive much. Those who have experienced the grace of God, extend the grace of God. Those who have, exper- who have experienced the, generos- the, the, uh, the generosity of God, give generously. As we jump down, Let's jump down to verse 16, because I want to hit on the, the, this also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all of his days, he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. What's going on? That you can have everything, all the wealth, all the money and all the riches and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, what you can actually be is depressed, sick and angry on the inside. And you can be alone. Why? I'm still going back to a secular article about this. The Forbes article says this, when you start having elitist big jumps upwards, then things change. There's a lot of disconnect from simple things, like sitting down for dinner with your family, where the discussion is about family stuff, like Billy hit me or Sally stole my lunch. That's the stuff that brings texture and joy to life. And people may lose a lot of that richness when they're consumed 
with the business 24-7. Secular article. He makes this point even more clear if you jump down to chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. That should make us pause. What did he say? That if a man lives a hundred years, be yet his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, that it's better to enter the world without a heartbeat or breath in your lungs. That's what he says. He's saying that if you have and you seek all the money and all the riches and all the wealth in the world, but you forget to remember the joy that comes from the little things in life, to have a friend, to have a family discussion at a dinner table, to actually rejoice over conversations like Billy hit me or Sally stole my lunch, to see that these little things in life are actually the richness that God offers is that you can be consumed by some position of grandiose and miss all of this. And, and, and here the preacher tells us, remember, this is God speaking through one of the wisest men that's ever lived the world is that you can have all that and you'd be better off just to be a stillborn child. So then what do we do? There's a reason why Zacchaeus encountered Jesus Christ and said, Lord, what do I do? I want to give everything. There's a reason why these women encountered Jesus Christ and said, Lord, I want to give you everything. Is what we can start to do is not look out in the world and say the world needs grace. What we can actually start to do is start to evaluate and say that we need grace. And we can see that based upon how we steward the time and the resources God has given us. What we do with our money, what we do with our wealth. And there's people in this room that are extremely generous people. And so for some of you, I would encourage you to be generous, but how does that play out in life? It just means this, that I believe that Christians should be known as the most generous people in all the earth. Like, I don't think that, that, that someone should be able to or outmatch a Christian's generosity. I'm not talking about your giving to the church. Please hear me. I'm just talking about in life in general that I don't believe that people should be known to be more generous. I believe when you tip at a restaurant, when, 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 when you're doing stuff, when you're out in the world, that we should be known to be a generous people. Why? Because we've experienced and received the ultimate grace of God. I hear down south, like in the Bible Belt, they have people that give for the wrong motives down there. And we would call that self-righteous giving, that I believe I put money in a plate and that buys me some, uh, some favor from God. I believe in the Northwest, what we have is more prodigal giving, as we say that I'm not giving anything, I'm holding into it. I would say both need the graces of God. But Alain was saying this, is you cannot, and, and, and I would encourage you to do this, you cannot read your Bible and disconnect grace from an impact and an impact that moves us into a lifestyle of generosity. You cannot read your Bible and see people that have encountered the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ and not expect there to be some sort of result from that. I mean, even in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial. Look here. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up with generosity. 
It's not saying that if you're really rich from the world standards, it's just saying that when people experience the grace of God, that's how he lives this out. But you know what's amazing to me is most pastors or a lot of pastors maybe might not want to read this because it seems like it might contradict or say, don't worry about it. As he says in verse eight, he says, I'm not commanding you this, but I want you to, uh, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. He was just saying that what we do with our finances and what we do with the grace God has given us matters. I'm going to read this poem. It's called Grace Doesn't Abide. What is grace? Grace doesn't abide by our world standard. Grace doesn't conform to the world. It turns the world upside down. Grace is not a two-way commitment. It's a completely one-sided commitment. It's a one-way love. In a world that tethers love to performance, grace doesn't abide. In a world that offers love in return, grace doesn't abide. In a world where hard work buys praise, grace follows no such rule. It does not abide. You can try to tether your deeds, morals, work, obedience, perfection, kindness, goodness, performance, or any other effort to grace, but it won't abide. God's infinite grace is there when all of these things are present, but equally there when all of these are absent. God's love and his grace doesn't abide to cultural norms. It breaks them, turns them upside down, and alone has the power to transform heart and soul and set us free. I would say again that when children of God encounter the infinite grace of God, that's made available to us and only to us by faith and trust in what Jesus Christ has accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection, this grace transforms our life. In closing, we were walking or driving in in the downtown area yesterday and and, and watched an altercation happen between a man and a woman, so I rolled down the window and I said, "Uh, Miss, would you like us to call the cops? And and she said, and just with tear-filled eyes, she said, no. I was like, I'm going to. And so we called the cops because I watched this man try to intimidate this woman by yelling at her and screaming at her and getting in her face and stuff. So we just followed them in, 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 our, in our car while we were on the, the police or on the phone with 911. And uh, as we drove away, I, 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 I talked to my wife and I said, do you, do you know what scares me? I, I think probably more than anything else in this world is that that is how I would talk to women. And that is how I would talk to you. And that is the kind of worth that I would give to our daughters have God, had God's grace not stepped in for whatever reason into my life or in, in, into our life. And I was just blown away. I think that scares me, honestly, almost more than anything else in the world is that I would be no different than my dad. And, 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 and what I presented to my girls for, for, for what they're worthy of because I, I would probably put some link to say or there would be a link to maybe she had a father in her life that showed her that's the kind of man that she's worthy of. I would be no different. And in fact, it scares me to think about the sort of husband and father I would be had God not stepped in by his grace and saved me. So yes, grace is free, and that's because it cost Jesus Christ everything, everything. And what's made available to us is that we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and he opens the door to God's infinite grace that we can receive. And that when we receive that, and only when we receive that, Do we have the actual ability to enjoy all that life has to offer? Do not hold our money and wealth and resources with this tight grip, but to release and say, God, it's all yours.